study today that we're going to be looking at some things that fly in the face of popular opinion and, and secular thinking. Uh, you know, the ways of the Lord are so very often contrary to the way most people think. You know, last week we covered one of those instances when we looked at how Jesus, he said that the last will be first and the first will be last. You know, it's one of those things that just kind of doesn't make sense to us. We're kind of like, no, the first is first and the last is last, but not so in the Lord's kingdom. And throughout the Bible, we read of things that just don't make a lot of sense to us in the way that we perceive things. The Lord told Samuel that the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord declared, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Throughout even our time in Matthew, we've come across some things that Jesus taught that that didn't make a whole lot of sense to us. And it was difficult to understand, and the people were puzzled by what he said. Recall that Jesus declared, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. He taught that greatness in the kingdom comes when you humble yourself like a child. As we've talked, or excuse me, as we've walked with the Lord, we've come to realize other truths about the Lord that just don't make sense sometimes. For instance... The more we learn about God, I find that the more we realize how much we don't know about God. And the more that we draw close to God, I believe the more we realize just how far we are from Him. Today, Jesus is going to give us another head-scratcher that pertains to greatness and position in His kingdom. And so let's read our portion of Scripture today. We're in Matthew Continuing our way through the book of Matthew, chapter 20, picking up where we left off in verse 17. And we're going to read through verses uh, 28. And so will you join with me and stand as we read God's word, just to honor his word as we read it. Um, Again, Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17, and we'll make our way through 28. So just follow along with me as I read Matthew 20, verse 17. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Verse 20, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am about that I am baptized with? They said to him, "We are able." So he said to them, "You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit 
on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come to it and that we can glean from it, Lord, and understand uh, what you were saying back then, but we can understand what you were saying to us today. And Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our ears and our eyes, our mind to see all that you have for us this morning. Lord, may we have within us an anticipation and an expectation that you are going to speak to us and to mold us and shape us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, here this morning. Father, we ask for just blessings upon our time. We ask for blessings upon the children's ministry and the nursery, everything that's going on behind the scenes, Lord, here. Lord, we even ask for your blessings and provisions and anointings to be upon the other churches and chapels here in Iwakuni that are meeting here this morning. We pray that you do a wonderful work in and through them as well. We look forward to what you have for us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. In our opening verses this morning, we rejoin Jesus and his disciples while they were on the road. Recall that Jesus and his disciples have departed from the region of Galilee. They went through the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and are on their way to Jerusalem. I think we have a map here. Okay, so they were in Galilee and Capernaum is up there at the top. That actually says Gennesaret, but that's kind of where Capernaum is kind of up at the top. Uh, and then they made their way down through Galilee, and it says that they, were, they traveled beyond the Jordan, the region beyond the Jordan, okay? So they crossed over the Jordan, they came down, and the Perea down on the bottom actually means beyond. And so that land is just kind of known as beyond the Jordan, Perea. And we're going to find that they're going to enter into the land of Judea. Next week we'll look and see how they enter into Jericho. And so they're on the road right now in between Perea and Jericho. And as they're on the road, uh, the time, they're, they're traveling to Jerusalem. The destination is Jerusalem. Uh, because the time for the Passover was approaching. Okay? And it was a requirement for Jewish men to appear before the Lord at the temple. And so this trip to Jerusalem would be somewhat normal for the disciples to take. Okay? Uh, as they were making their way to Jerusalem, Jesus pulled his disciples aside on the road to once again declare what was going to happen in Jerusalem. This is actually the third time that Jesus has declared to his disciples what will happen when they get to Jerusalem. Okay? He had informed them of this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. And uh, after Peter had properly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, he went on to tell them, this is what's going to happen when I go to Jerusalem. 
And then again in Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, while still in Galilee, you'll recall it was after the disciples uh, couldn't heal a, a demon-possessed boy and Jesus had to come in and, and pray for the, uh, and bring healing. Uh, it was after that time that Jesus once again told them, this is what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Each time Jesus spoke of what awaited him, he gave more and more details. In Matthew chapter 16, he simply said that he was going to suffer, that he was going to be killed and rise again. In Matthew 17, he added that he would be betrayed. And here in Matthew chapter 20, we get even more information. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus highlighted seven things that would happen to him when he went to Jerusalem. Okay, we'll highlight those seven things here this morning. First, he said that he would be betrayed okay, to the chief priest and to the scribes. Okay? Betrayal involves someone delivering uh, someone else to an enemy by means of deceit. Someone close to Jesus was going to betray him, to hand him over to the chief priest and to the scribes. And we know that this is speaking about the acts of none other than Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, the man entrusted with the financial oversight of the ministry, he will seek out the chief priests and he will ask of them, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to Judas 30 pieces of silver. And so for 30 pieces of silver, Judas Iscariot will betray Jesus Christ. Second, Jesus said that he was going to be condemned to death. Okay, this will happen when Jesus is brought before Caiaphas, the high priest. And Caiaphas asks Jesus if he is the Christ, the Son of God. And when Jesus replied, it is as you say. Caiaphas, he tore his clothes and he accused Jesus of blasphemy. And he then turned to the crowd and asked, what do you think? And they all answered, he is deserving of death. Third, Jesus said he would be delivered to the Gentiles. Now, this was an important detail in the plan. The chief priests wanted to put Jesus to death, but they really didn't have the power to do so. And so they sought out the help of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Okay? In Matthew chapter 27, verse 2, we're told that the chief priest, they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Fourthly, Jesus also said that he'd be mocked. This happened by the hands of the Roman soldiers who stripped him of his clothes. And they twisted a crown of thorns upon his head. Matthew chapter 27, verse 29 tells us that they bowed the knee before him and they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. He said that he would be scourged. This happened by the order of Pontius Pilate after the release of Barabbas. If you guys recall, Barabbas, a, a notorious criminal, a, a thief, a no-good guy, and they, he said, well, I'll give you an option. You can have Barabbas or you can have Jesus. And he said, we want Barabbas. And after that, he was sentenced to be scourged. To be scourged, it referred to a type of investigation that began with the beating of a prisoner with a whip that often consisted of a handle to which one or more leather cords were attached. Sometimes these cords would be knotted or weighted with pieces of metal or bone or glass to make the whip more effective as a flesh-cutting instrument. And so he would be beaten. 
and his back would be bloodied as he would be scourged. Jesus then said that he would be crucified. Crucifixion was the Romans' most severe form of execution. Jesus endured the pain and suffering of the cross and willingly laid down his life for you and me. And and if if the story ended there, it would be a very sad and and hopeless story one of the most hopeless stories of all time but it doesn't end there jesus said one more thing would happen the seventh thing he said is lastly he said that on the third day he would rise again jesus fulfilled this as well defeating death conquering our sin that was laid upon him the angel boldly declared on the third day that he is not here for he is risen as he said in Matthew 28, verse 6. Jesus, in these two verses, clearly foretold in detail the events that would take place in Jerusalem. And yet, it would seem that these words fell upon deaf ears. We don't hear of any response from the disciples. Luke's gospel account actually explains this to us. He says, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Luke 18, verse 34. Why were they unable to understand the things Jesus was speaking of? Some suggest that maybe it was because the Lord didn't allow them to understand. But I don't think that's it. Because to me it doesn't make sense. Why tell them three separate times about an event that's going to happen if you didn't want them to know about the event that was going to happen. And so that doesn't make sense to me. And perhaps there is another reason why they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, and we'll maybe get to that idea in a second here. Let's read on to see what happens next. Verse 20 through 24. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Verse 24, And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Here we are somewhat introduced to a new person in our gospel record, the mother of Zebedee's sons. Okay? Although the name of this woman is not given here, uh, some believe that her name is uh, Salome. Uh, uh, we do know who she is based upon her description. Okay? Zebedee, if you guys recall, is the father that was left behind in his boat by the disciples James and John when Jesus called them back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21. He called them, they were in the boats, and they said, See you later, Dad. Leave, left the nets left the boats, left dad to follow Jesus. And so this woman that has approached the Lord is the mother of James and John, the disciples. 
And we're not given any additional information here about Mama. Okay? Elsewhere, we do read of her being part of a group of women that were described as having followed Jesus from Galilee, and they were looking on from afar while Christ hung upon the cross. And so she was part of, of what we would say a group of disciples uh, had been following him while he was in Galilee and were there in Jerusalem when he was crucified. We also do know that James and John, they were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. Okay? And we don't know if that means Daddy was Thunder or if Mama was Thunder, but we look at this, someone gave, them, gave to them their hostile attitude. Perhaps Mama was a bit assertive, and maybe that's why they bring her along here this morning. And we can't say for sure why Mama was brought along. All we do know is that these three, they have come to the Lord with something something on their mind. Jesus asked James and John's mother what she wished, or better yet, what she had in mind, or what would please her. That word, uh, if you look it up, that's what it means. Uh, and, and Mama here, she requested that her two sons may sit, one on Jesus' right hand and the other on the left in his kingdom. You know, the boys uh, must have told Mama that they were already assured thrones in the kingdom. Remember last week we covered how Jesus told the disciples that they would sit on thrones along with uh, Jesus and that they would rule over the 12 tribes of Israel back in, back in Matthew 19, verse 28. So they knew they were going to have thrones, Okay. But here she asked that they would be able to sit presumably upon the thrones, one on the right and the other on the left of Jesus' throne of glory. The right and left speak of positions of power and prominence. Okay? In today's corporate hierarchy, the right and the left, they would maybe refer to like the chairman of the board and the CEO, these two powerhouses that kind of lead the corporation, okay? And, and basically, these guys wanted to be Jesus' number one and number two, or maybe like number one A and one B. They wanted to be right there at the top with Jesus. Now, I find this interesting because Jesus just taught, or at least tried to teach, the disciples a lesson about the first being last and the last being first. Those that, that wanted to negotiate a deal, you guys remember the parable that we went over last week, those that wanted to negotiate a deal with the landowner, they were put off by what the landowner did for all the other workers who didn't seek out a special deal. And yet here they are. They're trying to negotiate a, a position of prominence, a position of power. Today, we're going to look at, at two very different approaches to greatness. One approach is demonstrated for us by the two brothers, James and John, while the other is characterized and embodied by Jesus Christ. This first approach that is demonstrated by James and John, it really typifies those that are uh, power-hungry. Okay? They when you're power hungry, you're going to find that there are a whole lot of problems that follow. Okay? And I want to point out to you a number of problems that often can occur when you and I become power hungry. When we are looking for that position of prominence and we strive for that seat of power. Okay? 
there's problems that come. Okay? These problems, they're not given in any particular order, but they're found within the text of our section this morning. And so we're going to be kind of going a little bit round, but basically uh, in verses 17 through 24 of what we've covered thus far. First off, a, a problem that often accompanies those that are power hungry is that discernment suffers. Discernment involves sound judgment that makes possible the distinguishing, uh, distinguishing of good from evil or right from wrong. Okay? And, and look how Jesus responded to their request in verse 22. He said, you do not know what you ask. Jesus pl- plainly told them, he basically he said, look, you don't know what you're talking about. What you're asking, what you're requesting, you don't know what you're saying. Because of their desire to want to be number one and number two, James and John, they suffered a a lapse in discernment. They didn't know what they were talking about. You know, I think that can happen in our life too. When we focus on gaining power and position, oftentimes discernment suffers because we're so focused upon what what we want, we neglect to properly think through the situation. You know, at this point, a it, it, little silly, but it came to life. I, I thought, oh, this is a great little illustration. Uh, last night, right before my eyes, uh, my one-year-old son, Boaz, you guys, a lot of you guys know him, okay? He was get, wanting to get to his brothers who were upstairs in their bedroom, okay? The boys were sent upstairs to go get ready for bed last night, but Bo wanted to go with them, okay? Without thinking things through, Bo walked over to the steps. He climbed up the first one and then seemed to all of a sudden realize that he didn't know how to get up the stairs. And then so he stood there stuck on the first step, hollering out to his brothers. He got up one stair. He realized that he couldn't make it up the stairs. But then the other thing that he realized is that he didn't know how to go down the stairs. And so he's just sitting, standing there on this one step, looking around and yelling, trying to get his brother's attention. You see... Bo didn't think things through. He was so focused on getting upstairs that he didn't realize that he was trying to do something that he couldn't do. He, he didn't think it through. He didn't use any type of discernment. He's like, I just want to be there. We do that sometimes. Okay? Which I just want that. And you go for it, and then you find yourself in a situation like, how did I get here? Because your discernment suffered. And this leads me to the second problem that can occur when we are, are power hungry. You know what happens sometimes when we're power hungry? We put ourselves in situations where we really, really think things through, but we also, we can become arrogant. And we can, we can claim that we can do things that we have no idea about. Jesus asked James and John if they were able to drink the cup that he was about to drink and be baptized with the baptism he was going to be baptized with. And I know some of your guys' Bible translation doesn't have that part about baptism. It just means you'd use a different uh, source text. We've talked about that before. Uh, not a big deal, but if it's something that concerns you, come talk to me. Okay? Anyways, how did they answer? We are, we are able. Yeah, we can do that. Absolutely. Really? Do, do you even know what Jesus is referring to here, guys, when he says, can you drink my cup and can you be baptized with the baptism? But you're so gung-ho. Yeah, we can do that. What was the cup Jesus was about to drink? And what was the baptism that he referred to? 
In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and praying to the Father, He declared, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In fact, Jesus prayed three separate times that the cup would be passed from Him that night. What was that cup? That cup was the symbol of God's wrath that was about to be poured out upon Him. It pictures for us the pain and suffering that He was about to endure. The scourging, the mocking, the beating. What about the baptism that He referenced? Because baptism, is, it's a picture of death. When someone's baptized, we immerse them in the water... And it pictures for us the old man dying to sin. And we raise them back up out of the water, picturing uh, that new life that we have in Jesus Christ. And so baptism, it's a picture of death. And the baptism that he's referring to was his death upon the cross. Do you really think that James and John had this in mind when they so arrogantly proclaimed, We are able. I mean, think about if they were to be reworded. James and John, are you both ready and able to take part in pain and suffering and you are to willingly sacrifice your life? Yes, sir, we are able. I don't know if that would have been so come out of their mouth so fast if they really knew what they were talking about. Okay? But they were arrogant. And that's what happens when we're, we're power hungry. We become arrogant. We think we can do things that we can't do, or we think we can do things that we have no idea what we're really talking about. Interestingly enough, Jesus does say that indeed they will drink his cup and partake of, that, of his baptism. The cup and the baptism, it pictured pain, suffering, and death. James, if you, uh, Acts 12, uh, tells us about how James was martyred. He was one of the first Christian martyrs, okay, uh, besides Stephen, okay, uh, actually, James, it tells us that uh, he was actually beheaded. Okay? And then uh, his tradition tells us that his brother John actually survived multiple attempts upon his life, once even surviving being dipped in boiling oil. And so did they go through some pain and suffering? Yeah, they did. Did they experience death? James did. He was beheaded for his faith in Christ. And so, yes, you know, these did indeed partake of the cup and baptism of our Lord, as they said they would. But I doubt... They had any inclination of what they were really saying at this time. The third pitfall uh, that I see here of seeking power and position is that it often can blind us from what is right in front of us. Jesus just pulled these guys aside on the road and told them that he was about to be betrayed, condemned, delivered, mocked, scourged, and crucified. And how did they respond? By making a power play for positions in Jesus' kingdom. Hello? Are you so blinded by your desire for position that you've completely missed what is right before you? Previously, when we looked at these verses, I suggested to you that there may be a plausible explanation for why the disciples didn't react or they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Perhaps 
It was because they were blinded by their own selfish ambitions that they were oblivious to what was right before their eyes. You know, I, I believe that happens a lot as well. People get so focused on seeking after greatness that they fail to see what is right before their eyes. In today's day and age, people will go to great lengths to achieve what they believe to be greatness. All along the way, they are blinded to the blessings and the goodness of the Lord that is right before them. Oftentimes, it's those blessings and the goodness of the Lord that we are willing to sacrifice to make it to the top. And for what? By the time that we get to the top, we've already had to sacrifice everything that we hold dear to ourselves. It's not worth it. But this is what can happen when we allow ourselves to be consumed with power and position. We fail to see what's right before our eyes the blessings and the goodness of the Lord that are there. And yet we're like, i got to have this up here. And the blessings are right before you. Another problem that can surface when we are power hungry is that we can, oftentimes we end up displaying false humility. Look at how they approach Jesus in verse 20. It says that they came to Jesus kneeling down. That phrase, kneeling down, it's actually one Greek word. It's the word proskuneo. Okay? And it symbolizes an act of worship. Okay? It's pictured by falling prostrate before the Lord. And it, means, it can also mean to kiss or to adore, to, to worship. Were they really coming to worship the Lord for, for who He is? Or were they simply going through the motions, trying to get what they wanted? I suggest to you that this was not sincere, genuine worship. They weren't coming to the Lord, adoring Him, submitting themselves to Him and whatever His plan was. Okay? They were coming to get something from Him. You know, I, I think that sometimes we do that from time to time as well. We come to worship the Lord not for who He is, but, but for what we think we can get from Him. You know, let's not be filled with a, a false humility when we come before the Lord and, and worship. And let's let our worship be genuine and, and sincere and just worship the Lord for who He is. Instead of just thinking, Lord, I'm here to worship you and this is what I need. Here's my list. You know? But just to say, Lord, I'm here to worship you because you're worthy of worship and you're awesome and you're great and, 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 I, and I'm amazed by your goodness and your love, and, and just get wrapped up in that. Sometimes we can come acting like we're worshiping, surrendering, surrendering and submitting ourselves to Him when really we're just coming to get something from the Lord. And, and I don't want to get, don't get me wrong, it's good to come to the Lord and, and bring our requests and our desires before Him, and we want to beseech Him and ask Him to intervene in our life. That's okay. But we got to have a good balance. We've got to have those times where we just say, Lord, I'm here to worship you for who you are, not because I want something from you. Not only was their approach filled with false humility, but it also was, I believe, shameful, okay? which is another problem that can arise when we are power hungry. We employ shameful approaches. Look at these grown men trying to use their mama as a means to get what they want. Okay? 
You know, some try to say that mom was acting upon her own, but I just don't see that at all. Okay? Mark's account rightly identifies the source of this question that mama asked in his gospel record, identifying James and John as the source for this questioning. Okay? Even Jesus saw through this shabby smokescreen. When he responded to the question, he said, you do not know what you ask. Guess what? The you is written in the plural form. He's not responding to mama. He's responding to James and John. And he says, you don't know what you're asking, James and John. Okay? How embarrassing and shameful for these boys to try to use mama to get their way. You know, using other people to get what you want is something that is shameful, yet it happens all the time. You know, my older boys, they are kings of doing this. Okay? If I had a nickel for every time that Ethan was sent to me and to ask a question that his older brothers were too scared to ask, I would be a very, very wealthy man. Okay? Hey, Ethan, go ask Dad if we could play the Wii. You know, it's like I can hear them, too. And then Ethan comes over. Hey, Dad, I was just wondering, do you think we can play the Wii? I was like, did your brother send you in to ask? Um, um, you know, or, hey, hey Ethan, go ask Dad if we can Hey, Ethan, go ask Dad if we can play at the park. Go, go. You know, they think since Ethan's the kind of the, well, we have Bo now, but he used to be the little guy, you know, and it's like, you, you, they will say yes to you when they won't say yes to me. It doesn't work. I don't know why they keep, ask, keep trying to do it, but they do it all the time, okay? And it may be a bit humorous when our kids do it, but not so when, when we, as adults, use other adults to get what we want. It's shameful. This leads us to the last problem that I notice here. When we are power hungry, it can lead to division and dissension within our brothers and sisters. Verse 26 states, And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. The word displeased really doesn't portray the full measure of the other disciples' feelings here. Okay, if you were to look up that word and do a little bit of a word study on that, the word means to be oppressed in mind, to be grieved or resentful. Okay? It means to be indignant. Okay? They were flat out mad at what the brothers did. Okay? Some wonder why they were so mad. I think it's pretty safe to assume okay, that that these guys weren't necessarily mad because they thought James and John asked for what they asked for was bad or I can't believe you did that, you know, you're so unholy. I don't think that was it at all. I believe it was because James and John beat them to it. Okay, because if you look at it, I, I think you can easily support this scripturally as well. On multiple occasions, we find that the disciples would argue amongst themselves as to who was the greatest. Over and over again, they're fighting. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest, right? I'm the greatest. No, you're not. You know, like, this was a common thing that was happening between them. And so James and John, they make a a power play for position, and they were mad. Not because of what they did was unholy, but because they did it before they had a chance to do it. They wanted to be number one. And so they often fought with each other over this position of power and greatness. Oftentimes our fighting amongst each other 
it, it creates schisms within our relationships, and it can lead to more problems. You know, a, a great many of church splits have come as the result of people seeking out power. They want to have a say, they want to be the head, they want to be great, and they end up causing division and dissension within the church. And we need to be careful that we don't bring division and dissension amongst our brothers because of our own selfish ambition to have things our own way. Well, now that we've thoroughly covered the many problems that can come, and I'm sure there are more that come from the power-hungry approach to greatness, let's look at how Jesus explained the way to greatness in his kingdom. Verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus, noticing a teaching opportunity as yet again, the disciples are arguing about greatness and fighting amongst themselves. He calls the disciples to himself to try and instill within them the proper approach to greatness in his kingdom. He begins by describing how the world looks at greatness. He spoke about how the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. The idea of lording over someone means to bring someone under your own power, or to hold someone in subjection to yourself, okay, to be a master of someone. And Jesus talked of how those that were great in the world, they exercised authority over them. This speaks of, of wielding power over someone. And then Jesus says this, Yet it shall not be so among you. Here Jesus will exemplify what greatness in God's kingdom looks like. The first thing that we note is that we're not to lord over people or exercise authority over them like the world does. Back in the 70s and early 80s, there was a prominent church movement. I know most of you guys are too young to probably remember this or ever heard of it. But back in the 70s and 80s, there was a prominent church movement uh, known as the shepherding movement. And in this movement, people sought to establish themselves as lords over uh, the flock of God, and they caused people to submit to their authority. Rather than seek God for approval on certain decisions, you needed to get approval from your elder or from your shepherd. Should I do this? What should I do? Should I, you know, you need to get approval from your elder. You go to your your shepherd, and they're going to tell you what you can and what you can't do. Rather than seek God... These people were seeking man. It was the exact thing that Jesus says here not to do. They were lording over people, exercising authority over them, telling them, you can only do this or you can only do that. You can't do that. Okay? And it's exactly what Jesus said, don't do. But yet, that was a prominent thing that was happening back in the 70s and early 80s. And it's still prominent today, even in some uh, Asian churches. Okay? And so we you hear about that happening still today people that are being lorded over. Okay? I am not here to lord over anyone. Okay? Uh, 
I nor anyone else should never take the place of you seeking the Lord for direction and guidance. Okay? If you come to me and you say, hey, I need guidance, and they're going to say, well, have we prayed about it? Have you prayed about it? Let's pray. Let's ask God. Okay? And then maybe we can talk about what God's showing us, okay? and we can pray about that. But first and foremost, we're not, we're not going anywhere until we seek the Lord. Okay? Jesus, he then went on to say that whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And so we see here that the way to greatness is through service. The word servant in the Greek is actually translated in the King James Version as minister. Okay? Uh, and I guess the, the word minister is a, is a nice way of saying servant. Okay? Instead of saying, uh, you know, in the church you say, oh, this is our minister. You know, you'd say, oh, this is our servant. You know, it just doesn't sound right. So they have this word minister. Okay? But somehow we've got the idea stuck in our brain that the minister is the guy that stands up in front of people and teaches the Bible. In reality, we are all called to be ministers. The church is not meant to be led by one or two ministers, but should be filled with ministers, servants that are willing to serve or minister to others. Okay? That is why we call our Sunday school class, we call it children's ministry. Okay? Because you're serving the needs of the children. Okay? A servant cares for the needs of someone else. That's the basic job of a certain servant. Make someone else's life better. Make someone else's life easier by helping them out. Okay? If you're in youth ministry, you're serving the needs of the youth. If you're in a women's ministry, you're serving the needs of the women. Okay? It's really simple. Okay? We've got a lot of different ministries going on here at Calvary. But we could use some more ministers to spread the workload around. Ephesians 4, it speaks of how God desires to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's that word ministry. It's the same Greek word as in servant. For the edifying of the body of Christ. You see, what happens when we all serve one another and we all care for one another's needs, okay, and we look out for others, okay, the result is that we are edified. That word edified, it, it means to be built up. Being a servant involves caring for others' needs and, and building one another up. That's a good thing, right? Isn't that something that we would all cherish and say, yeah, I, I'd like some of that? Well, then do it. Jesus said, if you want to be great, become a servant. Become a minister. Get involved in ministry. Okay? If you don't want to be great, don't. You know, Jesus then said, if you want to be first, then you must be a slave. And these disciples, you know, they weren't satisfied with just being great. Remember, okay? They wanted to be number one. They wanted to be the greatest, the first. Okay? James and John, they were already guaranteeing thrones. But if you want to, they wanted those positions of power. They wanted to be right there on his right and left hand, Okay? And so here the Lord says, if you want to be number one, if you want to be first, then you need to be a slave. That doesn't make sense to us. 
There's a, a difference between the word servant and slave, actually. If you look up and do a word study on these, the Greek word servant is diakonos, while the Greek word for slave is doulos. Okay? And I found a, a great blog, actually, online that did a great job of describing the differences between the, the two by a guy named Wayne Wood, and so I'm going to share that with you. Uh, it just gives a good example of how that plays out, the difference between being a servant and being a slave. A doulos, or a slave, okay, is one who is bound to a master and whose entire life is devoted to serving that master. A di- diakonos, a servant, is simply one who does work for another person. Okay? For example, okay, let's say hypothetically... Okay, that I am a contractor. You hire me to build your house. I am a diakonos, a servant, until it is done. And then when I finish, I'm no longer under obligation to you for anything. Once I'm done, I'm done. I walk away. I finished with you, and I'm no longer your servant. But being a doulos, a, a slave, it means you belong to another person. It's as, if, it's as if you guys were the contractor and I'm your framer. And I work under contract for you and I've got a lifelong contract with you. And even after we finish building somebody's house, I'm still bound by obligation to work for you as long as necessary. I am your slave forever, is the kind of the sense here within this text. I don't think anybody wants to be a framer forever, but uh, maybe some people really like that. Um, the idea there is that there's a commitment, a lifelong commitment. It's not just do the job and you're done, but you are. this is who you are. You're a slave. A- again, it's a distinction between what the person does as opposed to who the person is. Okay? The diakonos, the servant, does something the doulos, the slave, is something. Okay? As such, Christ is saying, if you want to be first, if you want to be number one, you need to devote all of yourself to him. Okay? You forsake your own interests, and you become completely devoted to the interest of Christ. That's what it means to be a doulos, a slave. Sometimes it's translated as bondservant of Christ. Paul and James and Peter and uh, uh, others, Jude, they, they identify themselves in their letters as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The idea is they are completely sold out for Christ. They are consumed with fulfilling His will. Their will is on the shelf, and it's all about being a slave to Christ. Not just serving Him and then kind of going and doing your own thing, but I'm, everything I do is consumed with you. That's what it means to be a slave. Okay? Jesus concluded his lesson to the disciples by showing another important aspect of greatness. And that is, Jesus, he led by example. Okay? Jesus didn't tell his disciples to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself or that he hadn't already done himself. Philippians describes how Jesus became a slave a bond servant. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let me read it to you. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, 
but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, a doulos, a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus led by example. He became a bondservant, a slave, by coming to earth and being completely surrendered to the Father's will, being obedient to the Father, even to the point of death upon the cross. Remember, he cried out three different times. If you, this cup can pass from me, let, please let it be. But not my will, but your will be done. He was a bondservant, completely consumed with fulfilling the mission and the, uh, fulfilling what the Father had for him. Paul, he understood what it meant to lead by example as well when he declared, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. He didn't say this in a boastful way, follow me because I'm so great. He's saying, I'm going to follow Christ. You guys follow me and we're going to follow Christ together. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. You know, we need to be imitators of Christ. We need to lead by example if we want to be part of the greatness of God's kingdom. Well, what was the example that Christ left for us? I believe it's twofold. First of all, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. Greatness in God's kingdom is not about the Lord serving you in your best interests. It's about you serving the Lord. You know, I think this mentality of being served has crept into today's church in regards to service. I'm not saying that this happened here, but I've heard of it happening. I've talked to people and other pastors that have described situations that this has happened, where people can come to church with the mindset of what, what does this church have to offer me? Or how can this church serve me? You know, I got looking for something for my kids, and I'm looking for a certain type of ministry style and a certain type of worship style. You know, what do you have to offer to me? You know, and I understand that we have different styles, and, and that's fine. You know, we're all not the same, okay? Uh, God's called us to be a certain way, and we have a certain style and a certain type of worship. But wouldn't it be better if when we came to church... We came with the mindset of Christ that wasn't looking to be served, but to serve. And, and when you came to church, your mindset was, what can I do to serve these people? Wouldn't that be great? I think that the blessing would be tremendous for not only the, the body, but I believe for you individually. The second part of his example was that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, greatness in God's kingdom, it involves sacrifice. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. A ransom, it describes a, a price that's paid for redeeming captives, loosing them from their bonds and setting them at liberty. Here it describes how Christ delivered us from the bondage of sin and death by paying the ultimate price. He laid down his life for us and he shed his blood upon the cross of Calvary. How does that apply to us? How do we follow in that example? Okay? Well, we don't have the ability to loose people from the bondage of sin, 
by our blood. Okay, we are not a, a perfect sacrifice like Christ. Okay, but let me tell you this: we all have a life to give in service to the Lord. We can, and, and I think we should, give our lives in service to the Lord and to others. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he, Paul declares to us, I beseech you, he's, he's begging, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. There's that word again, service. Today we looked at two very different approaches to greatness. One was demonstrated for us by James and John, who were seeking after power and position. And we noted the many problems that this mentality brings, okay? And I hope that we will be able to learn from their poor example and avoid this type of approach to greatness. And then we looked at how Jesus described greatness in his kingdom. We noted how it was upside down from what the world tells us. The world says, hey, look out for numero uno. Kick and scream and bite and climb and get to the top no matter what. That's what the world says. But Jesus says, hey, if you want to be great, be a servant. And and if you want to be first... Be a slave. And I hope that we would all receive the challenge before us to be great for the Lord and His kingdom, to follow in our Lord's footsteps. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for the blessing of Your Word. And Lord, it's not necessarily a feel-good message here. Lord, Is You kind of had to pull these disciples aside and kind of correct them in their poor approach and their desire to be great for you. Lord, you, you didn't say desiring to be great for you was wrong. In fact, you said, hey, if you want to desire, that's good. Here's the way to do it. Through service. Through humility. Through becoming a slave and, and being sold out for who you are and, and what you've done for us of just saying, I'm, I'm yours. Let me do whatever I can for you. Lord, may we lead by example the example that you've left for us, that we would serve one another, that we would lift one another up, that we would build one another up. Lord, realizing that we're all part of the same body. And even if this isn't the church that we're going to come to, I know we have some visitors, we're still part of the body of Christ. And so this message applies no matter where we go, that we should just get involved in, in ministering and serving. And so, Father, I pray that we would follow your example. By your Spirit's strength, Lord, that we would be able to step out of our own comfort zones, that we would be willing to say, hey, I can help out, and I can serve, and and, and actually come to church with a mindset and an attitude that says, hey, how can I be a blessing to someone else? I think sometimes we are fearful that it won't be reciprocated, and so we hold out. Lord, may we be willing to take that step of faith. Give us the strength to do so. May we honor you in our service. May we, our lives be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, acceptable before you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.